Lots of happy sounds going out the door there. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn in it to Acts chapter 1. We are continuing our sermon series where we're engaging with some of the prominent ideologies and practices of our culture, trying to see what the Scripture has to say about those things. We're trying to discern the good of God's will for us in all things. Today, the topic is politics. Yay. The word simply means activities associated with governing a society. And it's, it's been said that there are two things you can't talk about in polite conversation, religion and politics. But I think it can be useful. I think we can do this in a reasonable way, God helping us. <laughs> um, this is an election year. I don't think I need to convince anyone that politics is a huge topic in the news. We brace ourselves for the relentless onslaught of ads between now and November. <clears throat> but it's also a huge topic in the Christian church at large, either as an undercurrent in our conversation where people are trying to feel each other out with where are you on this issue or that issue, Or sometimes it's a a full-on, preached-from-the-pulpit political message on a Sunday morning. For example, last week we visited my mom in Arizona, and I think she's the last person on earth who doesn't have a computer or a smartphone or the internet. She uh, likes to watch Christian broadcasting on TV. So we sat with her uh, through a few programs on on her Christian Broadcasting Network. And there were preachers and teachers that were all expounding different things. The the first program uh, featured a man who had only one volume, which was shouting, and his talk was dedicated entirely to why Palestine should not exist as a state. The second program featured a panel of guests who were explaining why they were voting for Donald Trump with the approval of the host. Only in the third show did a pastor open a Bible and preach from it something that wasn't political. I think that's a good sampling of where the Christian church is at in America today. Political issues are becoming church issues, and church messages are becoming political messages, and people feel passionately about these things. Some believers in Christ will join or leave a church, not because of the gospel that's preached, but because of the politics that exists there. So how do we navigate these waters? What's the place of politics in the life of a church or in the individual Christian life? To answer that, we're going to go to a passage that points to what Jesus said is the mission of the church. Because if we know what we're supposed to be about according to the head of the church, who is Christ, then we can find the the proper place for everything else, including politics. So we're going to read from Acts 1, 6 through 11, which is the account of the early church when they were with the risen Christ. They also lived in a political environment, and they had political questions 
But Jesus reminded them of what the church's true mission is. So let's read from Acts 1, verses 6 through 11, and then we'll pray. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have the privilege of giving you our attention this morning and hearing from you about matters that make a difference in our lives. It's not all theory. It's not all something that's just out there and doesn't have any connection to our lives. You, you have a will for us. It is good. And even in this area of politics and being citizens of this earthly kingdom, you have something to say to us. You have hope for us. You have a perspective that we need to go through this year with hope and faith and confidence instead of fear and despair and doubt. So help us this morning, Lord. Give us the gift of illumination by the Holy Spirit as we look into your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our path this morning is we're going to walk through the narrative, and we're going to look at it in three parts. The disciples' question the Lord's answer, and the angel's pronouncement. So first, the disciples' question. So they've been brought together, probably at the initiative of the Lord, uh, and they have a question for him. And it's in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what is it that they're asking for right there? Well, the words to Israel are very telling. These are Jewish followers of Christ. They're Israelites. They've been taught their whole lives that when the Messiah comes, he's going to deliver Israel from its enemies and restore the nation to its former glory. So they're thinking, now that Jesus has conquered death, <laughs> he's risen from the dead, this must be the time when it's going to be just like the days of David and Solomon, the high point of Israel's history, only better, because now it's the kingdom that will not end. And Jesus is going to leave it. So now, now they're going to throw off the tyranny of the Roman oppressors, and they will have a theocracy, a nation ruled by King Jesus, but also the authority that he gives to Israel's leaders, who are now followers of their Messiah, that's what they're thinking. That's what's behind this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, it's not just a theological question. It's a political question. It's about governance. 
Are we going to rule instead of the Romans? Is the kingdom coming into this world to Israel? Are we going to be that theocracy, that nation? It's a political question. Their longings for things like self-governance, freedom of religion, the guarantee that they won't be persecuted. That's all wrapped up in this question. Now, they're going to find out that the answer to their question is no, not at this time. But can you see how this is relevant to our situation today? Aren't these the same longings that the Christian church has in America? We want government that's led by believers in Christ. We want freedom to live out our faith. We don't want to be persecuted for it. It's the same things that the early church wanted. They expected maybe it would come right now. Some of us gray-haired saints, we remember a time when the church had both respect and political power in the U.S. When Billy Graham was the advisor to endless stream of presidents, uh, when being a pastor was a respectable, respectable occupation, uh, it was good to be a pastor. People thought that was great. Most people attended a church, or at least they were deferential to Christianity, but no more. That ship has sailed, and that can produce and is producing among believers a desire, sometimes even a panic, to reclaim what has been lost. And since it's a democracy that we live in where we have some say in how we're governed, the the obvious tactic seems to be recover those Christian freedoms or Christian prominence by political means. Let the churches rise up and take action. Preach against the evil politicians from the pulpit. Get the vote out. Change the culture by whatever means. Lobby your senators and so on. Whatever it takes. Let's pull the political levers. Now, there's a place for being a responsible citizen who works for godly change in the culture. And we'll come back to that in a second point. But I'm just pointing out here this temptation the church has today, which is to put our hope in political change by political means. Or to put it another way, our temptation is to prioritize a political salvation so we can have an earthly peace in an earthly kingdom. And there's a name for that. It's political idolatry. Because whatever comes first in our hopes for a better life is our functional God that we worship. If we invest our hope in happiness in the outcome of an election instead of in the outcome of the cross, that's idolatry. It's looking for salvation by political means rather than by the cross. But Psalm 146.3 reminds us not to do that. It says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. The early church, and I think this is often true in the American church, suffered from a misunderstanding of what kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring into the world. Jesus didn't come to restore an earthly kingdom to Israel or to the church At any point in history, Jesus came to set up his own kingdom, which is a heavenly kingdom, in the hearts of people. 
We see it in John 18. When Jesus had been arrested, Pilate questioned him about why is it that your fellow Jews have delivered you up to me to be crucified? And as he was responding to Pilate, he told him this in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus didn't die and rise again so his followers could live in a peaceful earthly life in control of our lives without suffering or persecution. He didn't die for that. He never promised that. In fact, he said things like this, You will be hated by all for my namesake. Matthew 10, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23, the cross, that instrument of execution, it means suffering after Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus died and rose not so we could enjoy an earthly kingdom without suffering, but so we could become citizens of a heavenly kingdom where all of our suffering here, for righteousness' sake, is laying up for us treasures there. The kingdom of this world is passing away, but the kingdom of God is everlasting, and it is joy everlasting. Let me make a specific application here to a movement that's gaining some traction in the evangelical church. It has a hearing among sincere believers who are discouraged about our culture, and they see this movement as a courageous resistance with the goal of restoring Christianity to its rightful place. It's called Christian nationalism. That's a title that could apply to a range of views, but in essence, the idea is we need, we need to make America a Christian nation. We need to resist tyranny. We need to transform the culture. We need to institute God-honoring laws by force if necessary. One book defending this view argues explicitly for the idea that Christians can and maybe even should revolt against our culture and, quote, after successfully revolting, establish over all of the population a Christian commonwealth. Now, not everybody will go that far, but their sympathy for the idea of regaining control of our cultural moment by whatever means. But that is really no different than what the early church was looking for. An earthly kingdom restored to God's people where we're in charge, a temporal salvation where we have control over our destiny. <clears throat> that's not the direction that's going to bring us peace. Jesus came to bring his kingdom in a different way, and that leads us to the second point, which is the Lord's answer. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, they asked? Well, here's the first part of his answer in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That answer has both bad news and good news in it. 
The bad news is Jesus is essentially saying, no, not at this time. The earthly kingdom that you seek is not going to happen now. But there's good news in the answer, too. It is going to happen. Eventually. When will it happen? In the times or seasons that God the Father has fixed by his own authority. (laughs) God is going to bring his kingdom fully and finally to this earth someday. The deliverance that you want to to live and worship God in peace, to experience the the shalom, the, the, the God's favor in every corner of your life from your home to the capital. There's a day when all of your hopes will be fulfilled. There will be an end to everything evil. There will be the establishment of righteous governance under King Jesus. There will be human thriving without fear that it will ever end. There's a day on God's calendar. It's fixed when this will happen. No one can stop it from coming. It is coming. But it's not at this time, he said. And it hasn't been at this time since that time. But Jesus says, it isn't for you to know what, what, when that will be. You'll have to be patient. But that doesn't mean you'll be inactive. Because the second part of Jesus' answer is this, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, that's a critical sentence for us to understand in this whole thing. This is Jesus telling us what believers in Christ will do in this world while we await the day that the Father has fixed by His own authority. We bear witness to Christ. We make known the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what it means, what it accomplished, the forgiveness of your sin, the hope for healing and comfort for your, your soul today, the, the promise of healing for your body in eternity, in a resurrection. We make known this good news, this gospel, wherever we are, while we wait for the day. that the Father has fixed by his own authority, we tell the gospel, we adorn it with good works so people can put put their trust in the king of the heavenly kingdom and join him in that kingdom. That's what we've been given power to do by the Holy Spirit. Bear witness. That's the mission statement of the church. That's what we're to be about. It's the same thing as what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's our mission. That's our mandate. That's our priority, not political change. Why is that? It's because the kingdom that matters most is the eternal kingdom of God not the temporal kingdom of this earth. And the only way that people can enter that kingdom of God is by putting their faith in Christ. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was his message. That is the message of the church. The world needs the church to preach the gospel to it that they may repent and believe and be saved. That's the mission Jesus gave to the church, and it's a mission that only the church can perform in this world by the power of the Spirit. Here's how we say it in our statement of faith. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus has sent his people into the world in the power of the Spirit. The church's mission is to make disciples of all nations, te teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We do this by proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and adorning the proclamation of the gospel through our love and good works. Now, all this has implications for the church when it comes to politics, <clears throat> the activities of governing a society. Let me walk through two. <clears throat> Number one is that political matters are important, but they can't distract from the church's mission. <clears throat> They're important. We're affected. There's a place for engaging with and doing something about the political and cultural issues of our day. I'll say something about that a little later. Christians are not only citizens of the heavenly king, but also of this earthly kingdom. There's a place for responsible involvement in the issues that surround us. But before we consider what that involvement might look like, we need to be clear about what's central, what's mandated of the church, which is to bear witness to Jesus for the salvation of souls. Jeff Perswell reminded us at the pastor's conference that the gospel mission is the only mission that comes with the promise of Christ's presence and power. That's what the power is for, witness. And that's what his, his presence is promised to, going and making disciples. I'm with you always to the end of the age. We aren't given the power of the Spirit to transform the culture or to end tyranny. We are given that power to transform lives by bearing witness to Christ. And the rest of Acts shows the church doing exactly that. You, you see in this record, it's about 30 years of history of the church immediately after Christ raised and was ascended. And it's a history of the church being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So chapter 2, Peter addresses the crowd in Jerusalem at Pentecost. He proclaims Christ. 3,000 people repent and are added to the church. Chapter 8, persecution in Jerusalem scatters believers to Judea and Samaria, where men like Philip preached the gospel and healed the sick and cast out demons. Chapter 13, the church sends out Paul and Barnabas on a church-planting mission to the region that we now know as, as Turkey. Later on, he goes as far as Greece. The book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, Italy, the capital of the Roman Empire, the, the center of political power and military power on earth, and the gospel has gone as far as that to the ends of the earth, to the beginning of the ends of the earth. That's the story that we have. That's the narrative of Acts. It follows the progress of the gospel as the most important thing that's happening. And what's going on in the government is a side note. 
It only appears as it interacts with this mission <laughs> when they get arrested for preaching. <laughs> and, and Paul ends up in, in captivity. <clears throat> we cannot be more passionate about cultural and political issues at the expense of the gospel. It's not that the government is unimportant. It's just not first. But it's easy for us to get passionate about the wrong things. Going back to the Christian programs we watched with my mom, it's almost like the gospel itself didn't matter. But what really mattered was whether or not Israel was going to win in the Middle East or Trump was going to win in November. That was the message. That was of first importance on those shows. Individual believers and churches can become like that if we're not careful. A church or a Christian can say, well, hey, I know the gospel is the most important thing. That's assumed, right? But you know what you're most passionate about when you insert this other thing, this political idea, into a conversation that wasn't about that. You know what you pray most about. You know what you do most about. That tells you what's first. And if that isn't Christ and his gospel mission, then it's political idolatry. It's taken over. It's become too important. <clears throat> Here's what this centrality of the gospel means for the church, for this church. It means our Sunday morning messages are not going to be a platform to talk about the latest thing that's going on in Washington or in the Colorado Capitol or the latest bill that's up for a vote. Those things are important. They affect us. Sometimes they could become of such importance that we do have to talk about it. If, if there's a bill before the House that says we're going to ban Christian meetings, <laughs> we're going to talk about that. Some things rise to that level, but that's not where our focus is day by day. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in the gospel and in the kingdom that cannot be destroyed. The same is true for our discipleship groups. Talking about a political issue is not taboo. It's part of what's affecting us, sometimes in very troubling ways. But why do we gather? What's our purpose? Is it to gain agreement on the border crisis or gun rights? No, it is not. Here's our purpose, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Believers gather under the awareness that there is a day drawing near that is going to make the border crisis and gun rights and elections irrelevant. It's a day when the kingdom of God will become the kingdom of this world. <laughs> the day fixed by the authority of the Father when all of our godly desires will be fulfilled. That day is drawing near. Every day it's one day closer. So let's encourage each other with our heavenly hope. Let's stir up one another to press on in faith and faithful witness and reaching out in loving deeds and loving words to people who don't have hope. 
That's why we gather. Prayer meetings are the same. There's a place to pray for governing authorities, for sure. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're to pray for those in positions of influence, not so the kingdom will come through them, because it won't, but to provide a setting for peace in which people can thrive and godliness is welcome and the gospel can go forth. Sometimes we need prayer that we won't be afraid or despair over what's going on in the world. Those are all legitimate categories for prayer. But we need to be aware of that temptation for political idolatry, even there. Let our most fervent prayers not be for a certain bill to be defeated in Congress. Let our passionate prayers reflect our priorities like the prayers of the early church. And even in the midst of persecutions, they prayed this way in Acts 4, 29 and 30. Oh, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. <laughs> they just got out of a prison, so to speak. They were just released. And they don't say, Lord, stop this from happening anymore. They said, no, give us boldness to preach this gospel because that's our mission, that's our mandate. And you've promised that you're going to give power for that mission. It's a matter of what's most important in the heart. Political matters are important, but they can't distract from the church's mission. That's the first implication of the gospel mission as our priority. But though our main task is to promote the kingdom of heaven, we are citizens of the kingdom of earth. So what happens in this kingdom does affect us. We have responsibilities to speak and act in that realm. That leads to the second thing to say, which is that there is a difference between what the church must do and what the individual believer can do. <clears throat> There's a helpful distinction that's been made in this regard. When we speak about the church, we can speak of it as both an institution and as a living organism. Let me explain the difference. The church as an institution is the gathered assembly of believers in Christ, like this right here. It's the covenant community that's bound together at a certain time and place. It has governance by elders. It has structured times together. A liturgy of what we do in hearing God's word and taking communion and praying and singing we practice one another commands to build each other up, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. The church is the, found, the, the pillar and buttress of truth, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15. It, its foundation is Jesus Christ, and we're preaching the truth that flows from the Bible. We've been entrusted with preserving and proclaiming this truth, this gospel. And it's in the 
context of the church that the Great Commission of Matthew 28 precedes. It's where we make disciples and we baptize them and we teach them to observe all that Jesus commands. That is what the institutional church must do. And at times, that's going to include speaking to the moral issues that become political issues. And this sermon series is one attempt to do that because believers need to be equipped to know what is true and resist what is false in the culture. But as it comes to engaging with politics, the church as an institution mainly does that by preaching God's word. That's how we equip the saints. That's how we speak to what's going on in the culture. And that brings us to the church as the living organism. By that we mean the church that is scattered into the places where we live and work and play. Individual believers are to be salt and light, according to Matthew 5, 13 and 14. Preserving and illuminating presence in the world, drawing attention to Christ and to his kingdom by our witness, by word and good works. Individual Christians are to be a godly influence in all the places where the Lord brings us in our careers, families, social interactions, and even our political interactions. And there are many ways that a believer can do this. Obviously, they're sharing the gospel with a fellow coworker or family member or an acquaintance. But there's also good works done out of love of God and love of neighbor. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And that can take as many forms as you can imagine. You can pray with the discouraged. You can work to save babies from abortion. You can help a refugee family and anything else that is loving your neighbor as yourself. Salt and light in the world. But you can also do good in the political realm. You can be an informed voter. Like, actually read what people think (laughs) before you vote. (laughs) What they plan to do. Compare that with what God's will is. You can write to your senator. You can sign a a petition. You can even run for office. May God raise up more Christians who will. You can work for just society by being an honest business owner, by being a lawyer who's defending the weak, by donating to righteous causes. These are all ways to be a good citizen of this earthly kingdom. Individual Christians can do all those things. But whatever we do, as individual believers in the world. We do it as salt and light for the kingdom of God. We're bringing the values and the message of God's kingdom into the kingdom of this world in the way we live and the way we speak to others as witnesses. And we shouldn't discount the impact that that can actually have on the world. In Acts 19, Paul and I I believe it was Silas, they, they preached the gospel in Ephesus. And so many people responded to it that the silversmiths who were making these little shrines to Artemis, they were going out of business because people stopped buying them. <laughs> That's what the riot was about that ended up down in the, the theater. Uh, you know, he's putting us out of business. We've got to do something. Because the gospel was invading the town and changing things. Here in America in the 1700s, we have the, the New England preachers 
and what was called the Great Awakening. Entire towns were being converted and changed and transformed. That's what the gospel can do through gospel means, not by pulling political levers. We have to remember that there's power in the mission that Jesus gave us. We may, we may not transform the culture, but individual lives can be transformed, and that's no small thing. If I could summarize this point regarding individual Christian engagement in politics, I would just say this. Do what you can, but do it with a view to the eternal kingdom, not just this temporal kingdom. This isn't just about keeping our rights. It's about pointing people to the kingdom of God. That brings us to the last point, which is the angel's pronouncement. After Jesus responded to the disciples' question, he ascended visibly out of their sight and disappeared into the clouds. That would be really worth spending some time thinking about. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. That's a miracle. But suffice it to say, what that, what that was was his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God where he now has all authority in heaven and on earth. That Jesus reigns over the world right now. His kingdom is established in heaven. It is breaking into this world and every new person who comes to believe in him and trust in him. And one day it's going to come fully and the whole place is going to be renewed. The ground up. <laughs> but this is about his ascension to the right hand of God. Now, after Jesus disappeared, two men in white robes stood by the disciples. That appears to be a reference to angels. And here's what they said in verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Their pronouncement is that this Jesus who reigns over the world is going to return. He is coming back. As Paul said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The day Jesus returns is the time that is fixed by the authority of the Father. That is the day when Revelation eleven fifteen comes to pass in its fullness. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. It's when Jesus restores the kingdom, not just to Israel, not to create a Jewish state, but to all nations, to everyone who's put their trust in Christ as their crucified and risen Savior. That's when everything we long for now in the political realm is going to be fully realized. There will be no corruption, no lies, no oppression, no persecution. All our hopes and dreams for righteousness, for healing, for deliverance from evil, for a perfect society of endless happiness will be fulfilled beyond measure. It will happen when the one who was taken up in heaven will return in the same way, bodily, and he will reign forever. That's our hope. 
We don't hope in this temporal kingdom. We hope in the eternal one. Our story has a happy ending. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Titus 2.13. What a day that's going to be. But presently, we live in a fallen earthly kingdom where a lot of bad stuff happens. We're in the now and not yet period of church history. The kingdom of God has broken into this world through Christ. And yet it's not fully here because we still deal with all the sin and suffering. But we are awaiting that full salvation to come, and it is coming. So we're like the saints of Hebrews eleven thirteen. They're acknowledging that we are strangers and aliens on the earth. This is not our true home the way this is. We are going to our true home. We are like Abraham in Hebrews 11.10. We look forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's coming. Jesus is going to bring it to us. So let's keep the main thing the main thing in our hearts and minds and actions. Jesus sent us the Spirit so we could bring the hope of the gospel to the world. So let's do whatever we can in the world, whatever good we can, even in the political realm as God gives us opportunity. But let's keep our hearts in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and from which he will return. I want to close with a quote from John Newton. I think it summarizes our posture in the world with all of its political problems and temptations. Newton wrote letters to a young pastor named John Ryland Jr. in the late 1700s, and they had political fears in their day too. There was threats of war and so forth. So he endeavored to teach Mr. Ryland what a Christian's attitude should be, and his words still ring true today. Here's what he said. Though the Lord's path is in the great waters... My path of duty seems plain enough. I am to preach the gospel, mourn over my own sins, and the sins of professors, that means professing believers, and of the nation, and to stir up as many as I can in the, to stand in the breach by prayer. I hope many are thus employed. For the rest, I know that the Lord reigns, that the wrath of man, so far as permitted to act, shall praise him shall be overruled to the accomplishment of his wise purposes, and that the remainder thereof he will restrain. All the designs of men which do not coincide with this shall be frustrated. In the meantime, he will be a sanctuary to them who fear him. He bids his people not to be terrified. They are warranted to trust in him, though the earth should tremble and the mountains be cast into the midst of the sea. My citizenship is in a different kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Such are the outlines of my politics. Let's pray. May that be the outline of our politics, Lord. May our hopes be in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we put our hopes rightly there. No one can stop the good that you intend for your people. So help us to, to rejoice in it. To be wise about our interactions. Keep us from drifting away from the hope of the gospel. Keep it pure here within our hearts and in our message because the world needs it. Help us to be salt and light. 
for your name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.